Well, good morning, church family. We are uh, happy to worship together here at Windsor Road. If this is your first Sunday here, uh, my name is Randy, and I'm uh, privileged to be the senior minister here at the church. I'm going to be in a room called the Fireside Room that's out through these glass doors and to the right, and I would be delighted to just have a little FaceTime with you uh, after our services and uh, pray together and just meet you and, and hear a little bit of your story and get acquainted with you. It would just be a privilege for uh, for myself and uh, for uh, some of our elders and our guest services uh, team to uh, get some face time with you this, uh, this day. It's been a good weekend. Uh, Friday night, this room uh, was a banquet uh, table set up with uh, 40 or so banquet tables and we had now 350 uh, uh, sisters in Christ for the second to tell you my story. And uh, Sarah came home, my wife, and said it was just a warm, beautiful, wonderful, God-honoring time of table fellowship and the hearing of stories of what God has been doing uh, in our lives. And um, I was just encouraged by that. And I wanted to just recognize and thank uh, the whole team for making that happen uh, this weekend. Um, uh, Just a good... Good weekend, and I'll tell you what else is really sweet too is, yes, we have so many volunteers putting together the program and and making the event possible in the evening, and a part of that included um, tear down and set back up for Sunday. I mean, these the tables and chairs did not set themselves up or take themselves down, so there was an entire team of servant volunteers that made that possible, and so uh, that's just part of the health of our church family that, again, I'm grateful so very grateful to get to be a part of. So anyway, I thank you for letting me be your pastor. It's a good, it's a good uh, uh, feeling to get to worship with uh, the saints here at Windsor Road to tell you my story. This morning, I would like to tell you the story of Dr. Olivia J. Hooker of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Dr. Hooker's story is an exodus story from hostility to hope. Olivia Hooker was born in 1915, and her family lived in Tulsa's prosperous Greenwood neighborhood. It was um, the wealthiest African-American community west of the Mississippi. Oil had prospered Tulsa. Many thriving businesses Um, The Greenwood area was flourishing. Olivia's father owned a clothing store. Her mother was a teacher. Uh, By 1921, there were 10,000 Greenwood residents as a part of Tulsa's overall population of 100,000. In that respect, it was positive. On the other hand, there was a very dark part of Tulsa in terms of racism Vigilantism and the KKK. They were on the rise in Tulsa. 1920 uh, was a very tense year. And on May the 30th, 1921, an African-American young man named Dick Rowland was entering an elevator and accidentally stepped on the foot of a white female elevator operator named Sarah Page. They were both teenagers They knew each other. Um, 
she let out a scream which was misrepresented not by her but by other whites, misrepresented as assault. And matters quickly escalated in a horrible way such that over 14 hours between May 31st and June 1st, lynch mobs numbering over 1,000 poured into Greenwood and torched the district. Airplanes hurled firebombs on buildings and houses. 42 square blocks were destroyed. 300 citizens dead or missing. And of the 10,000 Greenwood residents, 8,000 quickly became homeless. Among them, Olivia J. Hooker and her family. Olivia was six at the time. She was at home when their home was looted. Her father's store was destroyed. There were no convictions in the courts over this massacre. And insurance payments were denied. And for decades, Tulsa's silence demonstrated denial of the Greenwood Massacre. I remember growing up in Tulsa at my college preparatory high school. It was briefly talked about in our U.S. history course. And by that, I mean, oh, by the way, this happened too in our city, and now let's go on to the next subject. Finally, in 1997, 1997, a state commission investigated what has been called the most destructive incident of racialized violence in U.S. history. After the destruction, Olivia's family moved to Ohio. And the only reason why her family was able to afford leaving and starting new was because Olivia's father kept a bond in a fireproof safe there at home. And they were able to get it and cash it in and uh, make, um, as best as they were possible, able to, a new start. Olivia uh, went to Ohio State University, got her bachelor's degree, and then later she joined the Coast Guard. She became the first African-American female in the U.S. Coast Guard. And with her GI benefits, she went on to earn her PhD in psychology from the University of Rochester. Olivia's research focused on the learning abilities of children with Down syndrome, and her career focused on children with developmental disabilities. So she was able to take the hurt and hostility of her childhood and transform that into a vocation of healing for other children. When you go to Tulsa, there is a memorial park in the Greenwood uh, neighborhood called Hope Plaza, and there's a monument uh, that you walk around and... Uh, there's a part of the monument that is the hostility part, the humiliation part, and then hope. And Dr. Olivia traveled this path, hostility, humiliation, and then hope. And this is what she said. 
She said, our parents tried to tell us, don't spend your time agonizing over the past. They encouraged us to look forward and think how we could make things better. And she dedicated her life to that. And two months ago, tomorrow, on November 21st, 2018, at the age of 103, Olivia J. Hooker went to heaven. She was the last known surviving witness of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Her path from hostility to hope reminds me of ancient Israel in Exodus 19. If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to meet me there Exodus 19, we're going to be looking at verses 4, 5, and 6. You'll find Exodus 19 on page 60 of your church Bibles. After rescuing his people from Egyptian hostility and humiliation, God gathered his people at a place of hope, Mount Sinai, where he introduced himself and gave them the gift of an identity and a purpose. He said, I am the Lord God. There is no other. I defeated the Egyptians. I carried you on eagles' wings. I brought you to myself. Here is who I am. Now that I've rescued you, let me introduce myself. I am the God of grace. I am the God of holiness. I am the God who requires a go-between. And after God told Israel who he was, he proceeded to tell them who they are. See, See, these verses answer two of the most important questions a human being can ask. Who am I? Who are we? And why am I here? What is our purpose? Who are we? What is our purpose? And these verses answer those all important questions. Hear the word of the Lord. In Exodus 19, 4, 5, and 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Did you hear the identity and the purpose? Rescued from Egypt, God says to the Israelites, here is who you are. I have rescued you out of Egypt, and now I want to get Egypt out of your hearts. And in order to get Egypt out of your hearts, I need you to trust who I say you are. So you are not who Pharaoh says you are. You are not who you think you are. You are who I say you are. And that leads us to the lesson of these verses in Exodus 19. As God's treasured possession, we are his kingdom of priests whose mission is to mirror his holy life. Treasured possession Kingdom of priests, holy nation, mirroring God's holy life. 
Now, centuries after Exodus 19, the apostle Peter will look at those verses through the lens of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, and he will say this about God's redeemed people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. He will say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the word of the Lord. Think about this for a minute. We never have to wonder who we are because the creator of the universe has said, here's who you are. And we never have to be confused about our mission or purpose in life because the creator of the universe has given us a mission in life. So don't miss the significance of these verses in both Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2. As we celebrate the ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we want to connect it to God's ultimate purpose for the world. And God's ultimate purpose is about people from every tribe and tongue uniting with the passion for the supremacy of King Christ. God's design in the death of Jesus is to create what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians is the new man in Christ. That is from every tribe and language and nation and people, God creates one kingdom. We who were once slaves to the dominion of darkness have now been appointed priests. Priests in Christ's kingdom of light. Priests from all tribes and nations and tongues. That fact should therefore make it unthinkable that we would not care about ethnic harmony in this church and in our community. These verses are clear about who we are and what we are to do. As God's treasured possession, we serve as a kingdom of priests whose mission is to mirror his holy life. And as we embody the truth about who we are and what we are to do, there will be a domino effect that will translate to a world that values human life, a world that sees beauty in the nations and tribes and ethnicities on earth. So let's spend some time on each of those dimensions of our identity and purpose starting with treasured possession. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful image. God ascribes his people the status of being his personal treasured possession. That's what's going on in verse five. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. That's, that is a statement of monotheism. For all the earth is mine. There's a one true God. There is one God. Not one true God among the gods. There's just one God. And the picture is this. Our God is a regal God. There's royalty all around 
these verses. For instance, when God speaks about being an eagle, that's a royal image in the ancient uh, East. And then that phrase, treasured possession, oh, that describes the royal treasure of the king. And, and the image is this. If the whole earth is a ring on the finger of our royal God, then the outrageously expensive jewel that adorns the ring is Israel. And Peter says, he uses the same image in 1 Peter 2.9 through the lens of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You are God's very own possession. Um, that means that you, you, you are in the jewelry box, the personal jewelry box in the private quarters of the king of the universe. What a magnificent thought. Think crown jewels of the United Kingdom, those 140 royal and ceremonial objects and plates and vestments, uh, vestments representing 800 years of monarchy. Well, that's nothing compared to this. God says, Israel, you are my crown jewels, my treasured possession. And in Christ, that's who we are. Think about this for just a moment. Regularly. At the throne room of heaven, the royal God summons Gabriel and Michael and the archangels, come around, come around. And they gather around the throne. And then God takes his jewelry box, pulls it out in front of them. And then very slowly, he opens that box. And as he opens the box slowly, the angels go, oh. Oh, my goodness. They just, in wide-eyed, wide-eyed angelic amazement, as God opens and, and shows them his personal, private treasure. There's silence in heaven. And he closes it and puts it away and says, okay, get back to work. Yeah. Church family. This is not feel-good theology. This is biblical reality. We are that treasure. We are that treasure. Do you know that? Do you need to hear that today? We're that treasure. And 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 that kind of wide-eyed, angelic amazement happens regularly. And it never gets old. Ever. Angels. Angels, First Peter 1 says, long to look into these things. Man. And, and you, might, you might hear someone say, well, okay, what did you do to deserve that? Well, see, that's the thing. <laughs> the status that we enjoy as God's personal, private, royal treasure is not an achieved status. It is rather an ascribed status. I'm thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. 
Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the reality and fact of our election has nothing to do with what we've done. It has everything to do with who God is. And God's mysterious election based on his love. That is why in Christ we are his chosen people. We have to agree with Dr. Jarvis Williams that the children of God do not hold tryouts to be on his team. So God loves us. He delights over us. He wants to be with us. God chooses his children, but it's not based on their performance or skill. You don't have to attend tryouts to be adopted into God's family. He chooses you. He loves you because he loves you. Because he loves you. And you cannot overstay your welcome in the house of God. For our royal God does not tolerate us. He enjoys us. So then, so then who are we to devalue the life of one whom God has ascribed the status of treasured possession? See, we are his personal royal possessions. That's ascribed value. Additionally then, based on his love, his mysterious love, God assigns us a role. And that takes us to this second image, kingdom of priests. God assigns his people the role of being his kingdom of priests. Verse six, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now Israel has 12 tribes. One of those tribes will function as national priests for temple service or tabernacle service, the Levites. At the same time, in a broader sense, God has assigned the entire nation of Israel the role of priesthood, royal priesthood, serving as a go-between from him to the world. So a priest is someone who represents God to people and then the people to God. A priest is a go-between, the one in the middle. A priest comes from the presence of God and tells the people what that priest has seen and heard and then the priest returns to the presence of God and tells God what the people are going through. Every week at our staff meeting, Tuesday morning, and at every elders meeting, about half of our elders meetings are spent in the presence of King Christ with our church family's prayers. We will take your prayer requests. 
and your praises that you fill out today, and we will remember them this Tuesday. Sometimes life is just too hard, and we need someone to help us pray. And we need someone to step beside us and take a little bit of the weight off of us to keep us from collapsing. And, you know, a parent prays for a sick child. So, so that parent needs a priest to stand beside them and you know, give them your tears. Parents don't have enough tears to cry all by themselves. They need some of yours. A marriage struggles. A husband doesn't know how to best love his wife, and his wife honestly doesn't know how to love him back. So they need a priest. So go to them and bring the peace of Christ to the moment. And when you leave, take some of the pain with you and lay it down at the feet of Jesus. Many people feel that they are beyond hope. That they've made too many bad decisions and they've had too many relapses. And you know, they would go to Jesus if they thought they had a chance, but they've given up on that. What would Jesus say to them except get out? No, they need a priest. And our mission is to be their priest. Tell them that Jesus sent you to remind them that he doesn't give up on people. And by priest, I'm not talking about the church staff. I'm talking about Windsor Road Christian Church. The church that goes back to Jesus with all of the pain and all of the losses like Moses and Abraham did and beg Jesus for more time. Maybe another can be rescued from the dominion of darkness if they're given one more chance. See, that's what priests do. A priest always believes in the goodness and mercy of God. And a priest always believes in the possibilities of their friends. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to stand in between and fulfill that priestly function that needs to go beyond the 75 minutes that we gather here in corporate worship? I'm talking about throughout the week, at our places of work, in our homes, in our relationships. A priest's mission is to bring the presence of God, the healing of God, and the word of God into any space. And when we do that faithfully, then that space becomes a holy space because of who we image and represent. And that takes us to the third phrase, holy nation. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. The word holy, holy has to do with representing God as his image-bearing priest. And I want you to think about an angled mirror. Uh, I'm not talking about the mirror that's in your hallway that you look at straight ahead and you see yourself. I'm talking about an angled mirror through which you can see someone in another room. A few years ago, I had an MRI, and I was so claustrophobic, I didn't think I was standing. I just didn't, I, you know what? I, couldn't, I could not pray my way into peace, not inside that closed-in tunnel. I mean, I was shaking. And finally, the staff fitted an angled mirror 
so that I could look out and see what was going on and not feel so isolated and alone. And they were able to look back and see my not-so-terrified face. But the point about an angled mirror is that you can see in both directions. And God has called us as his royal priesthood, having been ascribed the status of his treasured possession, he's called us to, to the ministry of angled mirrorship, where people see you, and in seeing you, they see the Lord, see, and we reflect his love and his care to the world, and, and then the world can praise the creator when they're in the company of the creator's church. So when we think about questions like, what does it look like to worship God? What does it look like to pray? What does it look like to promote justice? What does it look like for nations and tribes and ethnic people groups to live in love? What does it look like to... to live a life of service, well, they need to look at Windsor Road Christian Church. And to many, this word holy is this mystical, churchy word. It's a word we think deals with a list of religious rituals. But you know what? In Leviticus chapter 19, that chapter is really about the best commentary on the word Holy, Leviticus 19, describes holy. And when you look at Leviticus 19, you'll see that it is thoroughly practical, social, and very down-to-earth. So, for instance, one dimension of holiness is generosity to the poor and under-resourced. That's why Leviticus 19.9 says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So you get one pass through the field, leave the corners alone, and let the under-resourced have some of your generosity. Uh, that's a dimension of holiness. There's a dimension of holiness that respects the disabled. Uh, Leviticus 19.14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. There, there's a dimension of holiness uh, that deals with judicial integrity. I'll talk more about that in a moment. There's a dimension of holiness that deals with neighborly attitudes and actions. So in Leviticus 19, 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. So God's concerned about your heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Uh, you shall not bear a grudge, verse 18. That's a dimension of holiness. You shall love the immigrant, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, because you used to be strangers in the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. There's to be ethnic equality. There's to be commercial honesty. The scales need to be balanced. 
Verse 35, you shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights. That's a dimension of holiness. Very practical. There's nothing mystical about what I've just said here. And all through this chapter in Leviticus 19, there's this refrain, I am the Lord, as if to say, your quality of life needs to reflect my character. This is what I require of you because this is what reflects me. This is what I myself would do were I there, and I am there, because you're my representative. You're my royal priest. That's what it's like for Israel to be different from the nations. Not just that they worship a different God from among the gods, but that they actually lived differently in every dimension of personal and social life, and the nations around Israel would look at Israel as those angels did and be amazed and wonder, who is your God? Help us know him, you see. I really needed Leviticus 19 and this challenge about holiness this week. And the reason why is because, um, so Monday, I, last Monday, I had to report for jury duty. Now, I'll be honest with you, church family, when I first got my summons, I did not treat it as if I'd gotten a birthday card from my mother, okay? Um, so I really had to do an attitude check. And Leviticus 19.15 informed me that my participation in jury duty was a dimension of God's holiness. For Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. So you are not to give partiality to the poor just because the poor are poor, and you are not to defer to the great because the great are great. You're, you're, that has to be no bearing. In righteousness, you judge your neighbor. You are to be impartial. And why? Because the Lord your God is impartial. So yes, jury duty was jury duty. And it was also a priestly opportunity to mirror God's holiness. I think one of the most helpful commentaries in this whole section of scripture was from an author who wrote these words. Israel, and by extension, the new Israel in Christ, is to be a kingdom run not by politicians depending on strength and connivance, but by priests depending on faith in the Lord. A servant nation instead of a ruling nation. And in doing so, Israel redefines the meaning of dominion. Dominion comes by selfless service. So Israel, at Windsor Road Christian Church, as the new Israel in Christ, we are to be a people set apart, different from all other people by what we are and what we are becoming. We are a display people a showcase to the world of how being in a covenant with the Lord changes a people. 
There it is. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our church family were known for that? Oh, I believe we are. And I want to encourage us more and more and more that if our community said, there is a congregation that gathers on a location off Windsor Road, and just spending time in this congregation, they, they seem to have access to the creator of the universe. Here is an embassy of heaven, a community of hope. Oh, now we know what God is like. We have seen his people. So this week, when we walk into a room, a meeting, a classroom, an office, when we meet a student, a client, a patient, a neighbor, a teacher, a doctor, let us bring with us the presence of God into that room. Let's bring with us the portion of God's holiness needed for that moment. Sometimes it might be tough love. Sometimes it might be tender love. Tough or tender, it's holy love. In a world with vicious verbal backbiting, may our community look at us and see a culture of honor. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And the result is the blessing of our community and beyond. You know, don't you, that the goal of Exodus, the book of Exodus concludes with the building of the tabernacle, this portable sanctuary of worship. And as you look at the description of the tabernacle, you'll see images of angels and creation why, it looks like a recreation of the Garden of Eden where God once walked with Adam and Eve. And that is, in fact, the tabernacle, this miniature Garden of Eden for God wants to restore what was broken and lost in Eden. And he wants to restore the glory of his royal priesthood. Adam and Eve were once priests in this pure royal garden of Eden. And now in Christ, the last Adam, whose death, burial, and resurrection has accomplished for us the priesthood that we have so graciously been appointed by God. We are both holy royal priesthood and the very temple of God in which the Holy Spirit dwells. And so we sang, didn't we? Oh, send your Holy Spirit. Send your Holy Spirit so that the world may be blessed. We're not here for us. We're here for the glory of God and the good of this world. So I close with Dr. Olivia J. Hooker's words. It's not about you or me. It's about what we can give to this world. Amen.